Good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? There's that thumbs up. It means the sound is working. It's 5.30, so let's go ahead and get started. Great timing. It seems like uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, was cooperative in terms of the time. I'm going to talk a lot about that speech and then we'll hopefully roll into some of the J6 stuff. So some of the quick housekeeping items first. You're joining Mic Drop here on our regular scheduled 5.30 p.m. Wednesday call-in show. Colin is a podcast application that you can get at any place where you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get your regular podcasts. But the best place is always to subscribe here on the Colin app, because if you do subscribe, you'll get an automatic invitation like so many of you just got that we're getting ready to start the program uh, when a topic pops up. Uh, we were going to talk about January 6th, originally scheduled, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Zelensky speech, too, if that's okay. I might take a little bit of a detour on this um, because of, of some of the work that I had done in Ukraine earlier, and I want to talk about how that interacts with this speech. So let me say, um, also, if you guys get a chance, please share uh, on your social media here the button about uh, mic drop, the fact that we're having this so we can build this conversation, get things growing a little bit. Our audiences are gonna be a little bit smaller, a little bit tighter. I'm hoping a little bit more intimate as we um, um, go into the depths of the holiday season here. People are hopefully becoming a little bit less political, a little less political and a little bit more engaged with sort of their day-to-day -day stuff. Having said that, you're all political junkies like I am, so we're gonna spend some time talking about what this meant and what this speech meant. Um, Peg, great to hear you saying in the chat that um, you're filled with American pride. Let me say first, I think this was an extraordinarily dignified speech um, from, from Zelensky. Um, and I think it was um, obviously accomplished a couple of objectives. The first and foremost was to send a sign, not only to Vladimir Putin, uh, in Russia, but also to Xi Jinping in China, and indeed the entire world, as we prepare to transition into a Republican-controlled Congress. It's extremely important to demonstrate American resolve. And the best way to do that is to show um, the president of a country under attack, under siege from Russia, in the well of the House of Representatives, at a joint session of Congress. I can't think of a better way to demonstrate where this country is at, where we have been over the course of the past year, and presumably where we will be going forward. Because make no mistake, this was absolutely a signal and a message to Kevin McCarthy and or whoever is going to be the next Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, that you will have to walk this back on the global stage in a split Congress which will have damaging political impacts to you as the speaker and as to a Republican party heading into a presidential election cycle if you decide that you are going to take the wrong side of American public opinion. Now keep, keep this in mind, this is very important. Ukraine and Zelensky specifically enjoy wildly popular levels of support with the American public and with the American people. 
he also enjoys a significant majority support amongst the average Republican voter. Republicans support Ukraine. Republicans, in one of the weird, anomalous, can't figure it out, strange things, since Republicans have changed their positions on virtually everything over the past six years, have not moved below majority support in their opposition to Russia, in their concern about Vladimir Putin's aggression, and in their support of Ukraine. That has not changed. That has not wavered. I know there are the Matt Gates of the world, the Lauren Boberts of the world, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the, the Russia caucus in the Republican conference that's there. It's significant. It's measurable. It's growing. But it is, it is at odds with the majority of the Republican base, the Republican voting base. Okay. This will be a defining and definitive issue amongst Republicans in the midterms. And there is a good chance that there will be an erosion of support amongst Republicans in during the primaries as things heat up and as Republican contenders start to take different positions from one another. But I am absolutely convinced that a majority of Americans, including a large number of independents and a very sizable segment of the Republican base, if not a majority, will remain in support of Ukraine. Very, very important. Okay, it's very important because it's not just a statement, and this is this was the real genius of the speech. This was not just about a statement against Putin. It was a statement about standing for democracy globally, building an international coalition that will support democracies against tyranny and a show of force, a show of unity, a show of coalition against Chinese aggression. That's what this speech was about. The smart politics for Zelensky was to say this is not just about Russia and Ukraine. This is not just about America and Russia. This is not just about the West versus the East. This is about free people uh, fighting authoritarianism in whatever form that it takes. That was the genius of the speech. That was the message that was delivered. It was couched in very smart terms by saying things like Ukrainian courage and American resolve will lead to the defense of a free people. And by a free people, he wasn't talking about Ukrainians, he was talking about Americans, he was talking about a globally free people. Extremely important, okay? He also, and I, I can't underscore this enough, in fact, I'm gonna to try to underscore it through a couple of, of, of personal stories and anecdotes in just a second. But he made it very clear in using the terms of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech by saying that the, this war will be won absolutely. There will be no, no compromise in Ukraine seeking to reclaim from the occupiers its land, okay? And what, what that means is not just the Donbass, where the war is currently being won by the Ukrainians. It means Crimea. The 2014 invasion of Crimea, which began the occupation, this the, the Ukrainians will not stop until they drive the Russians out of Crimea. Okay? That's not that that changes the whole narrative for Putin. Okay, it's not just it's not just them being kicked out of the Donbass or or a place where there's a larger a lot of on the border between Russia and Ukraine where there's a lot of ethnic Russians who they claim are supporters of Russia and bringing back a Russian homeland or, or liberating the Russian people as Putin is telling uh, the Russian, his own Russian people, they're out there to, 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 to drive out the Nazis as he calls the Ukrainians and liberate 
the Russian people, the Russian ethnics that are in the Donbass. Crimea is a whole different ballgame. Crimea is, is, there's a significant Muslim population, the Tatars in, in Crimea. There's, there are a lot of ethnic Russians and there are a lot of ethnic Ukrainians. Crimea is a melting pot and is extremely strategic uh, positioning for both countries. This war, and I'm going to tell you why I believe this war um, began in Ukraine and it will end in Ukraine. Okay. Perhaps most importantly, I want to make this also very clear. The Ukrainians will not, there will be no, I'm trying to find the right way to stress this. There will be no compromise in this conflict. There will be no negotiation. When Zelensky said that in the well of the house a few moments ago, he meant that with absolute certainty. I want to say that the Ukrainians will fight until the last man. But the truth is, if the Russians wipe out every last Ukrainian man, Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children will fill their roles and they will fight for their country. Okay. Now, I'm gonna tell you why I'm saying that. As many of you know, I went to Ukraine in May. I went actually a few days after Speaker Pelosi left Kiev. Just a couple of days after Speaker Pelosi, who was the second major politician in the in the world to go to Ukraine after Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson showed up to Kiev. Nancy Pelosi showed up a few days later. This is what, when the capital city was under siege. Okay, There were still Russian saboteurs throughout the entire country of Ukraine, specifically in Kiev. Okay? I went in April towards the end of May or towards the beginning of May because I was there during during May Day too which I will just which I will talk about in just a moment but I left we left Krakow in, in Poland crossed the border 3 or 4 days after Pelosi left Kiev and came back uh came back towards the western uh front came back to the city of Lviv from Kiev to Lviv, it's an 11-hour train ride. She came by train. There were no planes. The entire country of Ukraine was under a no-fly zone and under martial law. Okay? Meaning that there's no law other than the, the end of the gun um, by any military person who you encounter. Though It is a country at war. And in fact, the reason why we did not drive from the Polish border and the city of Lviv, which is a Ukrainian city, close to the Polish border into Kyiv was mainly because, because there was, we're under martial law, uh, because there were saboteurs who were using landmines to, 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 to kill people. So it's a war. And there were Russians through the entire uh, countryside, but they were specifically, you'll remember this. If you, if you think back, remember all of the materials that you saw about Russians making Molotov cocktails. Does everybody remember that? When, when they would defend uh, with everything that they had, they would defend their capital city. They would defend their homeland. This was the environment within which Ron Steslow and I, you know him from the Lincoln Project and Molly McHugh, you may know her if you listen to Politicology, took a train uh, into, uh, into the Eastern um, Front not far from the Donbass region, not far, not terribly far from the Russian border. 
into the city, the capital city of Kiev, where Zelensky was at. We were we stayed at downtown, but I, I want to recount the the trip there. Never talked about this um, on a podcast before. We we took the three of us were journeying into Kiev. We were going to meet with some of Zelensky's. Um, the, the leaders of some of the war efforts and see where we could assist on communications strategies that they were employing. I don't want to get too deep into that, but we, we were taking a train ride in. There were, there were not very many people on the train because nobody except for people like us were going from the Polish border into the Donbass. We were heading into the conflict. Everybody else at this time was evacuating. You remember there were a lot of refugees leaving that side of the country. The three of us were heading in. The only other people, there were no other civilians. The only other people that were heading in were soldiers. And the soldiers that were with us at that time, young Ukrainians, and when I mean young, I'm talking 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old Ukrainians, very young soldiers. It's an 11-hour train ride. There's no water. There's no food on the train. You're just trying to get from point A to point B, however you could. I remember distinctly walking through some of the cars just trying to get some exercise and stretch because there's no stops either. It's a straight shot. It's 11 hours, no food, no drink, just you're going. And the soldiers, I realized, were sleeping kind of on each other. They were huddled together and sleeping, men and women together. And I realized very quickly these were married couples. These were recently married couples who had enlisted had joined the war effort. Sorry, it still chokes me up a little bit, just the visual of remembering seeing this, is recently married men and women who had enlisted when the war began to then take the train to go into the front. And I was struck by that because never in my wildest dreams could I ever see Americans doing that at this point in time. We may have back in the late 1700s. We, we may have when we were fighting for our national identity. We may have when we first realized that unless we fought with our lives, we would not be a free people. And that's where the Ukrainians were. Young men and young women getting married immediately so that they could be married when they went to go in to see the atrocities of war. And make no mistake about it, when Zelensky said that the Russians commit war crimes He's talking about horribly, horribly uh, barbaric atrocities that were occurring in cities like Bucha and Erpine, not far from the Russian border, where they would set up literally human torture chambers in the basement of houses. And if they would capture soldiers, this were, these were not people that were that were these were not soldiers that were in compliance with the Geneva Conventions. Part of the warfare of the way Russia practices war is by terror. It's by it's by it's by torture, and it's by by killing children, women, uh, soldiers, of course, men and women, so that those stories would get back and be told about what they were doing in those areas. So when when I saw young married couples who would never come back ever come back the same after what they were going to see, you recognize that these people are not, they're not, there's no compromise. These people are going 
knowing that they're the, the person that they love, that they just took wedding vows with, could die, could die themselves, could die together, or experience some horrifically barbaric events in the coming hours or days after after getting off of this train. So um, it's obviously a very moving experience. It's something that I feel very deeply and personal about. Um, but this, this fight, the, the, the fight for freedom that Zelensky is talking about in very real terms is our fight. It, it is our American fight. It is our fight as a free people. It is our fight as people of of any nationality, of any nation of origin that believes that freedom is, is a basic inherent human value. And so um, I don't want to go too, on, too, too long about that. I mean, I could talk about some of these experiences in Ukraine all day long, but, but when, I, when I try to convey to people how, how, how strong the Ukrainian people are committed to driving the Russian scourge from their land and why, why Zelensky never postures that he will compromise in this war, that is the reason, is they will not. They, they will not compromise. The, the Ukrainians will not compromise. They will die and they will say this. I met a few days later, I met with the, the head of cyber warfare Hybrid warfare, excuse me. We met with the cyber warfare folks later. We met with the, with the leader, a, a very accomplished professional woman who had sent her husband and her adult son to the Donbass just a few weeks earlier. She was heading off for Zelensky's efforts, some of their hybrid warfare programs. And I asked, "Do you, are you guys going to look for American troops? She was kind of shocked and a little bit offended and saying, we will never ask for your troops. We're asking for arms. We're asking for a fair fight. And she said something that also stuck with me. She said, if the Ukrainians are outmanned five to one, but we have the same level of artillery, we will win this war. That's how committed we are. And, and let me say this, I believe them. If they're outmanned five soldiers to one, but they have the firepower, just equal, not more, just equal. The Ukrainians will win this war because they will, they will, they will all die fighting. And that is not where the Russians are at in this war. And that, that commitment, when you see that, when you recognize that this woman's husband and son have left and are fighting 150 kilometers from where we were having this meeting, and she knows that she will probably never see one of them again and remains as much or more committed to the war effort. These people are not going to lose this war. It's, a, it's simply a matter of how many millions of people are going to die, which is what Zelensky said. The more arms they have, the faster they can drive the Russians out and end the war because Russia, the only way to, the, there's two ways to, for this war to end. Russia leaves or Russia is driven from that land. That's it. There's no like, let's cut up the Donbass or let's negotiate on Crimea. That is not going to happen. That will not happen. This war ends in one of two ways. It's either Putin withdrawing troops or Putin's troops being driven from Ukraine. 
Those are the only two solutions. And as a result, what we're seeing is Putin obviously in retreat, but and, and then threatening tactical weapons, threatening uh, nuclear strikes, threatening tactical chemical weapons. None of this fears or, or, or none of this will rattle the Ukrainian people. It will rattle the West. It rattles the shit out of us because we're not used to that type of not only negotiation, but actual approach to warfare. You have to remember Ukraine, people don't remember. In the West, we, we talk as we should in remembrance of the 6 million Jews who were killed by the Nazis, by Adolf Hitler, by, by the German aggressor. 6 million people were exterminated. You should never forget that. But what we forget too often is that Stalin killed 8 million Ukrainians in that same time frame using just as horrific techniques, the main one being starvation. Stalin starved the Ukrainian people. So when he's talking about fighting through a Russian winter over Christmas and commends America for doing that, for being holed up in the winter of 44, in that region of the world and our resolve. And then he says, Russia's cutting our power. Russia's cutting our water. Russia's bombing our infrastructure. Meaning the Ukrainian people will sit through and try to somehow eke out their existence through a Russian winter with no heat, with no water, with no plumbing, and not complain about it. Those are some tough fucking people. Okay, those are the Ukrainians are a tough, tough people and you will still not see them. I guarantee you this. You will still not see them asking for us to send in troops to save them. They're just asking for a fair fight. And if we don't give that to them, if we don't give that to them, then America ceases to be America. We can no longer claim to be not only a beacon of light. And, and a clarion call for freedom. We can no longer claim to not only be a city on a hill, we're not even a good ally in that fight, okay? That's what's at stake. And, 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 and to, to be there and to see that resolve of people willing to fight like that is, is, it was, was something I, I wanted to actually see, especially after the 2020 campaign, when I was watching a bunch of fucking Republican nutbags driving around in their trucks talking about their, you know, their, what, what were they, these freedom caravans and complaining about the price of fucking gas. Like that's, that is, or Americans complaining about having to wear a mask. Like that's tyranny in America today because we have, we have so forgotten, we've so gotten so far away from what freedom is and from what oppressive government is. We've become so spoiled and so completely removed from the reality of what 90% of the world has to deal with, that that's what we think is, is fighting against the tyrannical government. And to see people who are actually doing it made me for the first time embarrassed as an American, because there's half of our country literally believes that they're somehow patriots because they're fighting against vaccines and against wearing freaking masks in order to protect each other because they're somehow patriots or freedom fighters. So, Sorry, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but I'm really, really passionate about Ukraine because I've seen these people, I've seen their resolve. And um, 
and and I will I will just share with you. I think it was a brilliant move on behalf of Zelensky. I think it was a brilliant move on behalf of Pelosi and Schumer in a joint session while the Democrats control both houses. And obviously a very shrewd move by Joe Biden to, to lay down the gauntlet and say, this support for Zelensky is not just about Ukraine, it's about America and our resolve. And that was the, that was the language that Zelensky used, Ukrainian courage and American resolve. Uh, with a, a Ukrainian courage and American resolve, we will protect this paradigm for freedom against tyranny for this next century. That's what the fight in Ukraine is all about. And the Ukrainians are willing to die for everybody else in the West. They're not asking for NATO troops. They have never asked for that. They're not asking for the blood of Western Europeans. They're not asking for the Germans or the Poles or the Brits or the French or the Italians or the Spaniards or the, the, they're not asking, or Americans, they're not asking for us to go fight this fight for them. They will tell us, we will fight this fight for you because they're under no false illusions. This fight is not just about Ukraine. If Russia were to get into Ukraine, Poland is next. The Baltic states are next. Everybody knows that. Putin's made no mistake about that. China begins to get much more aggressive in Taiwan. That's what this fight is about. And I apologize again. I know you guys all know that. So um, I don't want to go on too terribly long tonight. And again, I don't want to ruin anybody's Christmas holiday with, with talk about Ukraine. But jump into the jump into the queue. Sorry, I had this off. Let me open this up. Uh, jump into the queue. Let's ask some questions. If we want to talk a little bit about Ukraine, Otherwise, I can kind of move on to January 6th. It just depends on what you guys want to talk about tonight as we kind of convene and everybody's got their probably wrapping up, wrapping Christmas presents while listening to mic drop in the background. So um, I'll give you guys a couple quick seconds if anybody wants to jump into the queue. Also, it can be about anything you guys want to talk about. If there's other things I've left unresolved, let's talk about those too. All right. Let me talk a little bit about J6 then. Um, look, I, I don't want to say it ended with a whimper. This was pretty big news up until Zelensky decides to announce 24 hours before he does that he's going to be dropping into, uh, into a joint session of Congress. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think the, the J6 committee made a really smart strategic move too. By the way, 90% of what its utility was designed for was used and spent in the midterms. And I don't think it could have gone any better. We've talked about this. I talked about this uh, through the course of the, of the better part of, of um, the end of last winter and spring as the committee was assembled um, around a January, February, March timeframe, same time that, uh, that the Russians invade or push, advance their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Cheney bolts, Kitzinger uh, bolts, and basically says we're going to join this bipartisan committee and, and, and start looking into what happened. The drumbeat, the steady drumbeat, and remember, let's remember the brilliance of what Cheney did on that committee by leaking out daily new news stories to keep and dominate the news cycle to start defining the Republicans as extremists in the minds of voters. That was the entire purpose of the J6 hearings. This, incidentally, will be the entire purpose of the hearings when they bring up Hunter Biden and they bring up Merrick Garland 
who will let's we're going to talk about Merrick Garland in a second because Merrick Garland's going to become under attack. And when they start investigating, uh, probably Nancy Pelosi, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think was was tweeting and pushing out today that um, they're looking into her email records and going to start blaming her for the security concerns. What a horrible mistake! But remember, Kevin McCarthy is not going to be. Uh, in charge of this conference. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in charge of this conference. And she has her own agenda and is not to build a Republican majority, at least not a Republican party the way Kevin McCarthy has seen it. And so the the J6 committee bleeds out through a daily um, regimen of, of very methodical, very meticulous news stories, leaks this stuff out, completely dominates the news cycle through the summer as we get into within the 100 days of the midterms, at that point, they do a phenomenal job of, of, of uh, orchestrating a made-for-TV program um, of the hearings and something that has never been done before. Um, most of the hearings usually are just a bunch of old white guys, one with a gavel, people screaming back and forth at each other. Um, and making kind of a spectacle of it. This was completely, completely novel and completely new in a made-for-TV format, uh, these J6 hearings, and uh, social media did its job, as did the cable news shows and broadcast. I think it was a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And again, the idea was to simply drive up the perception of Republican extremism and what were at stake in the midterms. And to that point, they did their job. They announced, of course, in the waning days of the elections that there will be yet one more hearing to the surprise of probably no one, certainly not to me. They make a recommendation to bring forth criminal charges to the president, former president of the United States. And if there was any concern, and there's this weird thing on the Internet about Merrick Garland, the people who just simply believe he's somehow complicit or co- co-opted or too afraid or too meek or too incompetent to bring charges. There's a, a handful, I'm not even going to mention their names, there's a handful of, of people on Twitter, um, you know who they are, who just keep putting this shit out about Garland. Um, if that were the case, and it absolutely is not, I'll dispel all that in a second, but if that were the case, this would certainly force his hand. You can't have a congressional committee make recommendations evidence-based on something that had this significant an impact on the midterms, um, make the recommendation to bring criminal charges against the former president and then have the DOJ and the attorney general just summarily dismiss it, okay? But let me make this really clear, guys. That's not what's happening, okay? I have been saying from, from day one, Merrick Garland is probably the most capable, most competent prosecutor to be put it in front of this effort to lead it to the point where he did. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. But what you really can't disagree with is bringing in independent counsel by the name of Jack Smith, a guy who's literally prosecuting war criminals at the Hague to come in to lead this independent effort. I mean, come on. Like if you, if you're still a Garland hater, that's, that's pretty much on you at this point, okay? That's pretty much on you. So, um, look, I, I think that the next shoe to drop will be charges brought in a January, February time frame. I'm saying that because I, I have no freaking clue. I have no idea. But I, will sus- I do suspect that this uh, investigation um, is much closer to concluding 
than it is, um, you know, undergoing, uh, asking questions, interviewing witnesses, reviewing emails and texts to find out what happened. Having said that, this has been literally the largest investigation ever undertaken by the Department of Justice since the founding of our republic in our entire history. There has never been a bigger investigation, and it includes a former president of the United States, probably half a dozen U.S. senators, probably another dozen or so members of the United States House, probably a 20, maybe 15 or 20 uh, Republican Party state chairmen, and a whole host of consultants, lobbyists, and power players in Washington, D.C., and in their respective states. This is no small thing, okay? They're not going after a bunch of international drug lords. They're not going after a bunch of, you know, pharma executives for price fixing. They're going after some of the most powerful people that have ever held office in this country. So to think that somehow they could rush it, or that we're going to work on so social media time to make people feel better about where we're at and then undermine their efforts because justice isn't being served, it's just, it's offensive. I think anybody who, 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 who criticizes Garland without any foundation, those are people you shouldn't be listening to. Don't follow them. Don't give them likes. Don't give them a little dopamine hit that they're, that they're trying to find by, by peddling in garbage. It's just, it's ridiculous. So um, I think that's where J6 stands. I, I, I think it's a wrap in, in many ways. It served its entire purpose heading into the midterms. I think it was a huge victory for Liz Cheney. Obviously, wasn't able to hold on to her seat for uh, by herself, for herself, um, but executes a, 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 her part, her part of the coalition to do her job in mitigating Republican expansion and control of our federal government. Liz Cheney is not done. We all know that the Cheneys are just getting started. This is not how the Cheneys go out. They do not you know, ride off quietly into the sunset and disappear on the horizon. That's just not the Cheney way. She's just getting started. Do I think she runs for president? No. Do I think she should? No. Do I think she will if it would help defeat Donald Trump or some other authoritarian figure? Yes, I do. She would absolutely do it. She's demonstrated that and more by giving up her house seat and burnishing and or burning, I should say, rather down the Cheney name uh, in the in the way that it's been heralded as kind of Republican GOP royalty uh, for, for 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 many decades, people forget Dick Cheney was was Gerald Ford's chief of staff as a young thirty year old. He was the chief of staff to the White House for Gerald Ford before he moved back to Wyoming to run for the House of Representatives. The Cheneys have been deep, deep, deep in running the United States government for a very, very long time. This is not how the story ends for the Cheneys. In fact, I would argue this is just how it begins. So with that, Peg, you look pretty active in that room chat. So I'm going to put you up on stage. Go ahead and unmute and let's have that question. Am I unmuted? You are. I can hear you. Hey, Mike. Hi, everybody. Um, look, I have to check my notes because there's a lot of moving parts going on right now. But the first thing I want to say, thanks for talking about today, because I've been in and out of tears just with pride all day, yeah. like from the second Zelensky stepped off. Air Force One. I was like, wow, Air Force One. Wow. Just, it's just incredible. And the president and the whole thing and the, and, and the, um, the optics of it. 
the effect yeah. that it has is incredible. They know what um, they're doing. They know what yes. they're doing. One real quick thing about Zelensky, too. You have to remember, Zelensky was a movie star before he became president. And so his, Absolutely. Ability, his understanding of the media, he just has a commanding awareness of it. So even what he was wearing, Republicans obviously went nuts about it. The reason they went nuts about it is because it's effective. He is a president at war. His country is under martial law. I think it would be disrespectful to show up in anything other than fatigues because he's commandeering a war. Now, does he need to be? No. He's also a head of state. But what he's doing symbolically is showing the state of his country that it is not only austere, but it is in battle. And I, I commend him for it. I think it was I think it was wise. And I think it's part part of this media acumen. So anyway, go ahead. Absolutely. Um, so. I've been meaning to ask you this for a while about President Biden, Biden saying he wanted to change the order of the first primary state from New Hampshire to South Carolina, how you felt about that. Um, what else? Oh, we had our town Democratic meeting. The Hispanic vote definitely came up. Somebody else mentioned it before me, and that set me up great to bring it up. And there was a lot of pressure, it seemed, to yeah. uh, bring that to the head of the Democratic. Good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that in just a second. Let me answer the first question first. The okay. Primary one, and we'll jump into the others. Okay. Um, um, look, having Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary um, has not made sense for a few election cycles now. The, the challenge is nobody wants to take on these small states because it's the only time that they've got relevance, and nobody picks that battle until presidential time comes around. And by the time you pick the battle – if you lose, you're going to lose one of those early states. And if you lose one of those early states, it hurts your effort to become president of the United States. So no one, no one, no one really challenges Iowa or New Hampshire. You just never did that. There's always people have been talking about it. And we talk about it all the time, but no one ever does anything about it. And that that's why, as a campaign operative, if you ever hear your candidate who's going to run for president saying, "Let's take on, let's let's skip Iowa or let's skip New Hampshire," it's like. That's crazy town. Shouldn't, shouldn't do that. You certainly shouldn't challenge their first in the nation status. The Iowa caucuses, the last couple of years for the Democrats especially, has been a complete disaster. Just just a nightmare. And so, um, look, I, I, it's always made sense. I think it's smart for the Democrats to kind of push it into states where there is more diversity. Obviously, I, I, it's not, doesn't, you know, there's no nothing lost on me that Biden picks two of his strongest states, right? It's genius. It's, it's good politics. South Carolina, Michigan, um, you know, the, the, they make a lot more sense. There's a, obviously the black vote is, is, is determinative in South Carolina. There's a rising Hispanic vote in Nevada. Um, you know, look, I, there will be some, there will be some, some, some back and forth, but especially amongst New Hampshireites, but the truth of the matter is these are not demographically states that are really reflective or responsive. The, the, the other truth of the matter is we do still have a very silly way of, of holding national primaries in the United States of America. We elect people through a very weird process, including the Electoral College. I'm not saying we get rid of it because I think that these were all designed to be filters in certain ways to test the veracity of a candidate. And like it or not, the chances of a candidate emerging a victor through this weird primary system and through the electoral college system, 
probably means that they are more prepared for um, the office than they would otherwise be if we had like, for example, one big national primary where all 50 states went and voted for their top Democrat or their top Republican. That, that to me would be really foolhardy. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It would be more diverse. It would clearly be more reflective of the country because it would be the country. But I don't think that that would allow for the type of voting and, and vetting that is required to actually have a strong candidate. So what do you think? I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on South Carolina and Nevada specifically? I'm, I'm not surprised that Biden would go with South Carolina. I mean, Whip Clyburn is the one that pulled him over the finish line, and it is a diverse state. It's a diverse state. Uh, it's certainly much more diverse than Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, right. And so you've got, to, you've got to look at that. I mean, America is not what it was 15, 20, 30, certainly not 50 years ago, and it's rapidly becoming less so. Um, so I, you know, I, I would like to see something a little bit more balanced, a little bit, a little bit more. I'd like to see a Georgia or a North Carolina where you have a little bit more, you know, uh, you know, South Carolina is, is there's a DC, there's an East coast problem with the discussion of race in this country where it still believes that diversity is overwhelmingly a black and white thing. I understand why. Mm-hmm. There's 250 years, a civil war, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, and civil rights. All of all of America's history about race up until the last couple of years has been a black and white discussion. I get it. I went to school in D.C. I, I did all my research on ethnic ethnicity and race and identity in the mid-1990s on the East Coast. I understand that bias. I'm from the Southwest. We have a much more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of race and identity because we have so many Hispanics and because that range is so wide in between those two, I believe that's a healthy part of what is of the promise of America going forward in many ways. And I'm kind of going into the next question you have here, the rising Latino vote, what I call the Latinization of America. Incidentally, for those of you that don't know, I'm going to start talking about this more. Uh, Simon and Schuster signed me to do a book, deal on well, the working title of the book is the Latinization of America. So all in the book will come out before the, the 24 presidential campaign it will probably come out in the summer before. So look for that. I will be talking a lot more about these issues because I'm so consumed with writing this. I'm literally writing eight hours a day on it. But as, as the Latino vote grows, it's forcing a racial reckoning in the United States that is unique in our history. In fact, I would argue that a lot of the progress we're starting to see with, with, with policing reforms, racial justice, a lot of the pushback that we saw on George Floyd wasn't necessarily a, about black and white. It's manifesting in black and white because that's the only way America knows how to talk about race, mm-hmm. but it's actually the increasing Latino population that is forcing whites to have this discussion in a way they never had before. Let me say a little bit more about this because this is really important. What I mean by that is this. The African-American population of the country since about 1920 has been about 10 or 11 percent. It's been remarkably consistent. The problem with having a minority that is at 10 or 11 percent is there's never a threat to power. Right. Blacks are never going to increase their representation except for maybe in marginal ways more than they currently sit at. When the Latino population starts to explode and the Hispanic vote, Latino vote, surpassed the black vote in 2020, 
and it's going to start growing exponentially now. And you start to see the fastest growing population of Montana and Ohio and Iowa and North Carolina as Latinos. And we're talking about triple digit growth here, dramatic, fast growth, replacing white voters. It creates this unease about the changing America. That's a lot of what Trumpism is about. It's not liking and seeing or being comfortable with America when it's not a white Christian nation. The problem is there's no language for that. Follow me for a second. There's no history to understand racial dialogue other than in the black and white construct. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, our renewed focus on the oppression of blacks appropriately, African-Americans, has been spurred by the growth of the Latino population, which is challenging white dominance. And that's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing because it starts to upend things like the systemic racism that we see in policing uh, throughout the country, in our government, in the halls of power, in corporate America, in all of our institutions. But the problem is, as Americans, we're woefully unprepared to have this dialogue in a very constructive way. That's why, especially on the American right, it devolves into this rising normalization of racism. Like racism is a lot more accepted now than it was six years ago before Trump. Like there's, there's stuff that people say now that is like, what are you talking? You have never said this in, you know, 10 years ago. And now it's just a matter of course. And that was the, that was, that was the goal of these people is to normalize and embed this racism as America becomes more polarized by these balkanizing ethnic tribes. The superpower of Latinos is, we really have a foot in both worlds. We're neither fully indigenous and neither or fully European. We understand and can work with both. And that can be a very positive cultural attribute for a pluralistic democracy, or it can be very, very dangerous. If you see some of the emerging racism with a number of Latino politicians, especially in Los Angeles, over the past couple of weeks or months, you recognize that Latinos and the future of the American experiment are really, really integrally intertwined. So probably spent too much on that answer, Peg, but that, those are the ideas that I'm going to be talking about a lot, probably here on Mic Drop, just because they're top of mind. We'll be topic, talking, of course, about current events and situations as they develop. But um, I'm hoping you guys are open for a really robust discussion on the Latino vote, the Latinization of America, and changing American identity, because it's going to be a huge part, huge part of the presidential campaign. The roadmap to 270 is changing dramatically demographically. The Latino vote is going to be a huge part of a wide swath of races. And more importantly, I probably shouldn't say this before Christmas or the new year, but the Senate map looks really, really, really bad for the Democrats. It's going to be really, really tough heading into a presidential year. And if the Democrats are able to do well in terms of holding on to their, their, their very small majority now, it's going to be because they overperformed with Latinos and they're going to have to figure it out yesterday. Thank you for all of that. I'm fascinated by all of that. Looking forward to more mic drops. Congratulations on the book deal. Can't wait to read it. Thank you so um, much. Any I, more questions? I know you've got a bunch of notes. You got anything else? There's no one in the queue, so it's sure. Okay. So from the time Trump came down that escalator, I knew this divide was going to happen. I knew it. I knew it. And I've been frightened of it ever since. But, it'll, you know, it's the fight also. I'm j I just get afraid for violence. I, 
I can't wait for the Latinization to take over. I, you know, <laughs> I can't because th this is no good. We can't stay like this. Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before. And James, I see you in the queue. Don't go anywhere. I'll, I will get to you in just a second. But uh, you know, look, we we are, and I've said this before, and I, I don't I don't mean this to frighten people. I mean this mm -hmm. for us to be aware. I do believe we have begun this twenty year demographic trend. Mm -hmm. um, we're about six, seven years into this, uh, where there's going to be increased political violence. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I, I do believe we will get through it. I don't believe it's a permanent state for us, but I do believe that it is happening. And, you know, that means there's going to be a lot more contention around things like um, balloting, false accusations of, of voter fraud, which, which will at some point spur the crazy in these people to go beyond just conspiracy theory and towards acts of violence, yes. probably on county clerks or secretary of state staff who are counting votes like that's we're not that far from that tripping and that 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 concerns me that frightens me because once they start to recognize that they can use violence to mess with the chain of custody on ballots that's going to be a whole new ball game that if you can't win in the court of public opinion by lying and clearly they've passed some moral and mental hurdle by doing that and are completely comfortable with just lying and and, and just you know using propaganda at a certain point, violence becomes a justifiable technique because they have so wound these people up on something that is not true. They, they, they tend to forget that, that the people they're lying to believe this stuff. They believe it. It's not just a, a, you know, a, a, a narrative to use at a press conference or to try to explain why you lost. You get people conditioned to believe your lies so much so that they start to believe that the republic is under threat, that the government is under threat, that the government is being stolen because you've been feeding them those lies for so long. Why are we then shocked or surprised that these people take violent action? Sure. And then we have January 6th and, you know, people really believe it. And that's why they went and people, that's, you know, they're just getting lied to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, All right, Ben. Thanks I've been so much. long enough. Someone else is in the queue. <laughs> yeah, jump back up if you want to, but um, let me run over to James real quick. Thank you, Peg. James, you're up on stage. Go ahead and unmute. Hey, Mike, can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, first time calling into your show. Pretty excited. Um, really pumped. Appreciate you being here. Yes, sir. So I, um, you know, I have a question about the January 6th committee, um, but I want to say uh, I, I want to say something before that, real quick, um, okay. if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Hold on one second. <clears throat> there we go. You know, I think they have done a tremendous job at what they've been doing since um, was it last year? I, I can't exactly remember when the when the committee was first formed what was it last year like late last year. This year spring of this year okay yeah you know i think they have done an absolutely tremendous job um i have not heard every bit of the hearings because they've had several you know public hearings but yeah. i i've heard i've heard quite a bit but you know the fact that you know that that adam kinzinger and liz cheney were willing to 
take, you know, Speaker Pelosi's offer to join the committee, the fact that they were willing to, you know, see the actual facts and the truth, you know, and work with other congressmen and women on the other on the other side of the aisle like that like that took a lot you know like that took a lot of courage for them to do that so i applaud them for that you know i i know that when the the house changes leadership the committee will no longer be a thing i'm pretty sad about it i i, I wish they could continue to do more work but you know i i'm glad that they were able to get the evidence and any, you know, just evidence, documents, you know, witness testimonies. I'm glad they were able to do all of that. They did. They put so much work into, you know, into getting into to getting to the bottom of what happened on January 6th of last year. Um, but like, but my question is, um, so will after everything is said and done, will do do you think this can continue to change some people's minds, you know, perhaps people who are still in the fence about, you know, what happened or do you think you know everybody has already made up their minds, you know, whether it's us or people on the other side, you know, like that's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, it's a great question. So let me let me say this. Uh, I think thanks for asking, uh, James. L let me say this. I I'm I'm pretty firmly convinced of the idea that um, a lot of the the decisions of uh, in the American public public opinion where it sits um, has been decided. Now I say that with the fact that there's a large swath of Americans, probably twenty percent. That number will grow as we move further and further away from it, who don't understand the immediacy of the of, of, of the threat who don't understand right. the danger that the country still faces, who will start to lose interest in the focus on the committee as it gets, on the committee's work as it gets older. But that's where the DOJ now is gonna take this into the prosecutorial phase. The purpose of the committee, at least I think as they saw it, certainly as I saw it politically, was to have in the court of public opinion, the evidence put out there to allow the American people to understand what happened. There are a lot of people who are critical saying, no one's watching this, doesn't matter. I think you probably all remember some of those criticisms. I was not one of those people. I was saying this stuff, called it a refrigerator hum, is just going to be this steady, steady drip, this steady, low voice that is going to set the predicate. It's going to set the narrative. It's going to set what we call the frame in a campaign, how people perceive the Republicans. And I think it was extraordinarily successful in that regard. So there's not much more work that the January committee can do. These investigative committees, all they really have is the power of public opinion. They can put evidence out there and let people see it. They don't have prosecutorial power. As you, as you all heard, they don't really have much power behind them in terms of right. power. But it, that they were basically building the case for the Department of Justice, who is now going to take this stuff and prosecute. I mean, I believe they're going to prosecute. We don't know until they actually come at them. But let me also say this. The DOJ has the force of, 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 of law enforcement and, 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 and punishments in a way Congress does not to get witnesses to testify and to procure evidence. 
what that means is as much as we have seen, as much as is clearly evidenced that the president of the United States was involved in an effort of insurrection and a lot of senators and members of Congress were as well, the evidence that DOJ has is going to be even more damning. It's, it's, the, the, what, what we saw is the, is the baseline. There, the evidence that there's still going to be more evidence that is going to be coming out from DOJ. So we have to be, we have to remind, we have to remember a congressional committee recommended from the evidence that they have, which is pretty damning, that, that the president, former president of the United States should be criminally charged. There's going to be even more evidence when Merrick Garland takes the, the uh, this to trial. Yeah. Um, I want to say something real quick, if that's okay. Yeah. So, so I think that Merrick Garland is doing a great job. Um, and when you think about it, it's like, you know, there's a lot of people frustrated that this process can't move faster because, I think a lot of us could acknowledge that the wheels of justice turn slow, and a lot of times we wish they would turn faster or maybe even light speed. <laughs> you know, you you know, we wish that things like this, you know, could could happen faster. But when you think about it, you know, and I was listening to the part, you know, on your, you know, uh, it was like 10, 15, 20 minutes ago, you know, about you know Mayor Garland, um, and. Like, when you think about it, you know, he isn't just going to take all this and just, like, throw it on the wall and hope it sticks. Like, he is going to make an airtight case. He's going to have every single bit of evidence that he needs and the Department of Justice needs, you know, in order to proceed further as far as, you know, making indictments and other charges and such. So, I mean, I think the best thing we could do is have patience. I do believe that there are going to be indictments against the people that deserve them, you know, you know, including Trump. But, you know, obviously I couldn't tell you when it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. So, you know, I, you know, I think, I think we are, you know, a lot of faith and trust is being put into, you know, to Merrick Garland and the you know, DOJ to do the right thing and, and such. And I'll, you know, and I'll be looking forward to the day when it happens. Like, I'm going to be pretty excited about it, you know, because that'll tell you that, you know, our justice system is not broken. It does have the capabilities to do the right thing, you know. And I hope I hope that could make a lot of things better, you know. And, and, and maybe, you know, you know, some people who aren't taking, you know, the, you know, these things seriously, you know, those who don't who didn't see January 6th as a big concern, maybe they'll start to take it more serious, you know, if they, you know, if they keep up with the news and just keep up with what's happening, you know, and such. But yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah. And James, what I'll say is this too, and I appreciate your calling in. It's a first time caller. Love that you've joined kind of the mic drop family here. Let me say this. Justice walks slowly, but she, she's fierce. I mean, she's, this is, the, the justice is coming. I, everybody needs to be mindful of that fact. Justice is coming. And um, I, I think it's going to be sooner rather than later. It's obviously been a long, difficult year. We all want justice immediately. This has been a huge, massive undertaking. I have complete confidence in this. I think you all ought to have complete confidence in it. And uh, we're just going to have to kind of you know, wait and take it from there. So, Lance, you're up in the queue. Let me um, hold on one second, Lance. Unmute you. Go ahead and unmute. 
Hey, Mike, how goes it? How are you? Good, good. So, can I help you? Uh, what are you doing tonight? Well, yeah, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, throw, throw, the, throw, the, throw the son of a bitch in jail. Throw Trump in jail. I throw Biden in jail and Obama and, and Bush, you know, and, and Clinton and the other Bush. Literally, throw them all in jail. I think you can make a very, very good case in a Harvard level or whatever, Ivy League or whatever fancy law school, like a moot court. I think you can come up with very convincing and a very, like, blind justice with the scales for all of them on a Harvard, okay? Frankly, I don't think it's going anywhere. Okay. (laughs) Fair opinion. Um, I don't know. We've got enough time on Mic Drop to go over talking uh, about throwing – Bush, Obama, Clinton, and Trump in jail. Um, I'm not too sure where exactly that was going, but I do guarantee you this. We don't have the ability to walk through the legal cases against all of those. So let's kind of skip that. James, you're up in the queue now. Go ahead and unmute. Let's take your question. James, you're up. There you go. Yeah, sorry about that. How you doing? Good to have you back up. Yeah, uh, good to see you. Uh, I found all everything interesting um, so far. Uh, this, I watched the whole Zelensky thing, and yeah, my pride was up. And I mean, I'm a veteran, so I'm like, every, anything we could do for him um, and and the Ukrainians is an awesome thing. But I do have a couple questions. Yeah. Um, so I noticed after the January sixth committee uh, uh, hearing. They're all now starting to say we shouldn't just go after the foot soldiers. We need to go after the to the ones up high. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're going to consistently keep doing that? And that's their way of pressuring the Justice Department um, to, like, follow up on what they're giving them. Um, and also, too, my second part of the question is, since the Republicans are going to take over and they're going to start subpoenaing uh, uh, them, do you think that the Democrats are going to, like, go back at them the same way they did towards them, or do you think they'll comply? I think those are a bunch of great questions. I mean, the first thing is, is look, I'm not, I've never, I'm not a prosecutor, but what I will say is this, is I think there's so much damn evidence that they've got enough to hang the guys at the very top. And so the guys at the bottom uh, and, and the guys at the bottom. So you're probably going to have the guys at the bottom start to sing to save their own hides. I think that's, that's what's going to happen. I think that's probably where we're, we're probably deeper into that phase than any of us realize. Look, one of the most remarkable things about this whole investigation, there's been no leaks. This has been the tightest investigation. It's not only the largest investigation in the history of the DOJ. It has been the most disciplined. Like, there are no leaks. And for no leaks to happen in Washington, D.C. is absolutely unheard of. That tells me that there's something there. Again, that's another sign is, is that the, the, these guys, Garland's running a tight ship. This is this is a serious business. They're, they're bringing on and have hundreds and hundreds of attorneys working on this effort right now. Okay, so are they going to cut deals with lower level guys to get the higher ups? Yes, absolutely. You know, who, who gets who gets a deal for what? I, I mean, I don't know, man. I leave that up to, to people that are a lot smarter and a lot more educated in the law than I am. And I think that they're all sitting in a you know big stone office in Washington, D.C., doing exactly that. But I, I just... I mean, I still have a high degree of confidence in the Department of Justice specifically and in justice in the United States generally that we are going, there will be a reckoning for this. 
I don't, let's try not to be, I'm not talking about to you. I'm trying to talk to the world here. Try not to be so cynical about justice. Justice is one of those things that will be served. She, she walks slowly because she should, and it, she's methodical. She's meticulous, but she will arrive. And when she arrives, it will be with vengeance and it will be with a swift sword. I believe that. I, I genuinely believe that. So, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you, you asked the second part to the question, didn't you? Yeah, the second part is the, uh, the game the Republicans played with uh, the subpoenas and them ignoring the subpoenas. So now they're going to turn around and try to, like, subpoena all the Democrats for Hunter Biden. And- yeah. Yeah, look, I've, I've been, look, I'm a Republican consultant, right? I'm a Lincoln Project guy, and, and I've, I've been involved in my fair share of criticizing the way Democrats fight, because sometimes I want right. to see them fight a little bit more, a little bit, you know, scratch their eyes out on the, on the playground. But, but let me say this. In an instance like this, you can, you can, money in the bank, the Republicans are going to overplay their hand. They're going to overplay their hand because they're not standing on the side of truth so they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to manufacture these stories. And the more they bring up Dr. Fauci and the more they bring up Merrick Garland, Hunter Biden, I think that story actually is going to hurt Joe Biden considerably. I, I do believe that. But, but, but even then, the Republicans will overplay their hand. I've been watching this since 1998. I was a political director of the California Republican Party in 1998 and watched the Republicans overplay their hand during the impeachment hearings of Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky affair, okay? They can't help themselves. It's the nature of their base. They've gotten their base so hopped up that you cannot feed the alligators enough to have them stop being hungry. You cannot satiate the hunger of the base when all you do is inject anger into their bloodstreams on Fox News 24 hours a day for decades. There's no, there's no, you can't make them happy. They will always want more. And that's why the conspiracy theory starts to, to, to come into play here. And so when, when that happens, you get the Marjorie Taylor Greens, you get the Matt Gates, you get the Paul Gozars, you get people that are going to be in charge of these committees that are going to have to take it to an extreme to satiate their base. And the more that they do that, the more they're leaving wide swaths of independence in the middle. You heard it here first. I've been saying this for a year. This is why Joe Biden will be reelected. Okay. So when you see the Republican crazy coming out, I'm going to answer your question too, by the way. Sorry. This is, this is, that, Mike, this is that long Mike Madrid wind up here. All right. When you, when you see the Republicans acting and being crazy, don't let it drive. Don't let it get your blood pressure up, guys. It's the best thing they can do. They're making the case for the Democrats. Okay. You've heard me talk about negative partisanship. People vote against things. People will reject that. They have been doing that since 1998. They will reject that type of politics. Okay. They did it in 2022. They just did it a few weeks ago. They will do that. They did it in 2020. They did it in 2018. 2016 is a little bit peculiar, but I would argue there's a Clinton factor in there, and I don't want to lose all my viewers, but let's let's just not talk about 2016. There's enough in there for people to get so frothy, so angry, Republicans I'm talking about, about these hearings coming up, that they're going to demand that the Republican investigators go as far out as they can 
And Lauren Boebert is going to be all about it. Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be all about it. So what does that mean for Democrats responding to subpoenas? In many cases, going and, re- and, 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 and showing up isn't a bad thing. Yeah, that's Being right. a part of the spectacle and being credible and answering the questions honestly is probably one of the best things that you can actually do. I'm, I'm not going to say it isn't a case-by-case basis. The reason why Republicans weren't responding to the subpoenas is because they were in deep shit. The facts weren't on their side. So why, you know, you, you might as well roll the legal dice and, 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 and then blame the Democrats for being partisan when the facts aren't on your side. The Democrats don't have that problem right now. Biden, Hunter Biden might. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not following that story. I don't like it. Something stinks about it. It doesn't smell good to me as a political operative. I don't, I don't know much about it, but I do believe that there is more smoke there than we have been led to believe. I don't think it's as big or as bad as the Republicans are saying, which is my point. The Republicans are going to make everything bigger and badder than it is. That means they're going to overplay their hand. They will do that. They will overplay their hand and it will play to the Democrats' benefit. So in that instance, James, I'm more inclined to say, play the game with them. I agree. Remember when Hillary testified at Benghazi? 15 hours. We keep yeah, she's just looking at these guys like, you're fucking nuts. And it, it played to her benefit. Yeah. One of the few times that the American public actually was like, yeah, I kind of like Hillary after this. Because compared to the Republicans, it was fucking batshit. Yeah. You I, go up there and you're credible. You've got truth on your side. And you just kind of answer the questions. It takes all of the thunder away from, from the conspiracy theory. Yeah. Uh, you said something just now that made me think, and I don't know if it, it probably won't turn into anything, but it was curious to see how how Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bobart like went at each other a little bit because she almost lost her election. It's, it, it goes back before that. There's tension in this caucus. Here's the problem with running. This is this is a, a bigger, broader point. I don't know if any of you guys read the New Yorker article on Kevin McCarthy. It came out a couple of days ago. You got to pick it up. I'm, I'm, I'm not just because I'm quoted extensively, but I, I mean, I've known Kevin for a long time. Kevin and I were the young Republicans together. When I was the political director for the Republican Party, he was a chief of staff for a congressman named Bill Thomas, who headed up the moderate faction in California. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it's worth a read. And, and, and the, one, of the, one of the points that I make is about managing a conference that doesn't have an ideology anymore. Nancy Pelosi did a fantastic job of keeping moderates and progressives together. That's really hard to do, okay? But it's not as hard as as managing a bunch of middle schoolers because there's no ideology in the Republican Party. It's all personality. It's all gamesmanship. And when there's nothing underlying, you can you can you can buy off or work with an Alexandria Ocasio Cortez versus a Tim Ryan by negotiating policy and giving people what they want. If there's no underlying policy, you have nothing to negotiate with. You're just dealing with mean girls. Yeah, that's what Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene are. They're just mean girls. It's like you got more attention than I did because you did something viral yesterday on Twitter. So let, you know, I'm gonna make a run at you. My, uh, thanks for uh, putting in the – there's the New Yorker magazine uh, article on Kevin McCarthy. Take a read at it. It's, it's really insightful. It, look, it, I'm not sure Kevin McCarthy puts the votes together. I think in the end of the day he probably does, okay? But what I will say is this. I don't think he's going to last long. 
I don't think he lasts three months. We may have four speakers, four Republican speakers, before the 2024 elections. I may be wrong on that, but I doubt it. I, I, I don't know how you hold a five-seat majority when you have three different ideological factions and a performative caucus that doesn't believe in anything. Matt Gaetz doesn't believe in anything. Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't believe in anything. Lauren Boebert doesn't believe in anything. Paul Gozart doesn't believe in anything. These people, are they're shapeshifters based off of whatever benefits them at the moment. You can't negotiate with them. You can't give them anything. And a speaker, in politics, if you've got power and you can't give out goodies to make a deal, you, you, you're, not, you're not in charge. And that's what Kevin McCarthy is going to find out. Is if, if he becomes speaker, if he becomes speaker, he's not going to be in charge. So anyway, I didn't mean about to take that side, you know, um, path there. I hope, I hope that answered the question, though, James. Yeah, you did. You did. You did good. <laughs> Close enough. Huh? <laughs> you don't Close sound enough. convinced. You don't yeah. sound convinced, but I appreciate that. No, no. It, it, it's all good. It's all good. Thank I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, friend. Thanks for joining being part of the community here. Xander, you're up. Hey. Love the avatar, by the way. Oh, yeah. Love the avatar. Th- thank you. Uh, Merry Christmas, yeah. and uh, thank you for uh, letting me on the show. Um, I, um, I, I do have to a little bit, uh, I, I guess, there was one small little thing you were mentioning, and I think it was a little bit of a Freudian slip. Uh, um, where I, I think you were saying something where I think you were kind of letting the cover down. You were letting the, 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 the cover slip is when you were saying that the, um, current investigation, um, into January 6th, there's been no leaks. I largely would agree with that overall assessment. The issue with that, when you're sort of stating that, is that is the complete opposite when it comes to things like, the Mar-a-Lago raid or Russia Gate, where it was a leaky ship left and right. And I mean, that was borderline the theme of the entire Trump presidency to where that's what honestly would spool up Twitter every single day. I mean, it was the injection blood for hashtag resistance. You're right. Like, I mean, I think about two months ago, we were hearing it was nuclear plans of allies are hanging out in Melania's closet or something, you know, it was leaking left and right. And I, I largely agree with your assessment that, like, yeah, they're not fucking around. Excuse me. I don't know if I could say that. Uh, they're not messing around on this January 6th stuff, and it's not leaking. But I just I, I want to kind of mention that little part where you're like, that does contrast to a lot of the previous Trump investigations. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but remember, there, there's um, – and you're seeing that Ohio Diner just posted what I was going to say is there's a tactic that we use in politics where bad news is coming down. You leak worse news so that when the real news comes out, it's not as bad. That's a containment strategy. We do that all the time. So so we get two examples with the Mar-a-Lago raid the right-wing media was out there reporting a lot of the breaking stuff. I guarantee you Garland's DOJ or the National Archives was not leaking that to the Breitbarts of the world. That was, that was Trump people leaking it to their audience. 
They were what? Trump, no, they no, were, no, 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 no. What I'm referring to are articles in the Washington Post that say this. Well, well yeah, from but, unnamed FBI officials. Hence, they, oh, it has well, nothing to do with the archives. Well, the archives are like a third party in this. It's more, yeah, random FBI agents. Why are they involved in this presidential records dispute? Yeah, and yeah. it's the, the the leaks from that that showed up in yeah. the New York Times and the Washington Post. Yeah. So let me so let me say this. Um, I'm not, I'm not too sure exactly which story you're talking about. I'm not doubting it. Um, and, and yeah, there, there, there's. I think my point is there is oftentimes a role for leaks. You, you, a leak isn't necessarily you know deep throat in Watergate meeting somebody at you know on the, on the mall and slipping them you know or saying follow the money. That that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. Oftentimes you orchestrate a leak where you authorize somebody to call a reporter. Say, speak anonymously and get the story out. There's a rule for that, right? That happens. That's right. by design. That's not happening here. And I'm not. I'm not saying that's good or bad. All I'm saying is it is, or it isn't, right? And well, that, no. If you roll back the tape, you were saying it's good. It's leading credence, like credibility to the investigation, which I agree with you on that. I. Yeah. I agree with actually your Freudian slip. Well, let me say this. <laughs> it's the let thing. Me, let me let me further clarify because I agree with what I said too. I don't. I actually don't think it was a slip. What, what I guess my point is this. Let me let me try to explain a little bit better. Um, th- there's a reason why they are not leaking. How's that? There's a reason why they're not, and it's because I believe the J6 committee was doing its job of getting the story out. And one, you don't want to step on any stories, let them do their job. One, the J6 committee was making the case in the court of public opinion and keeping it alive. And the second is, I, I again, I, I can't speculate as to why I don't have any access, but as, as, as somebody who just, who's involved in this type of activity in other, for, for, for other purposes, they, they, they've got, they, it, I, I think they've got the goods. Like there's no reason, there's no reason to leak anything to create external pressure, because that's a main right, reason, right, right. That's the main reason why you would leak, is you would try to move public pressure and keep eyeballs focused on something to try to get more information out of somebody. The fact that there's been kind of none, at least as far as we know, right? But then maybe there have been. Maybe somebody's really good at it and is doing it without any fingerprint, and and, and I, I don't know. Maybe, all I'm saying is there hasn't been much of the tr- or any of the traditional um, anonymous sourced Washington Post story like that hasn't happened. That's to me. Yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. We're, we're not. We're not debating. I'm, we're not disagreeing. I'm just trying to give everybody a little bit further explanation of, of kind of what we're saying here is there's a lot of techniques that go in, into why you would leak some information. And the fact that there have not been as many leaks in this one investigation. Separate from, I'm not saying that Merrick Garland runs a completely tight ship on everything. Clearly, he doesn't, and and wouldn't want to, by the way. But he he doesn't. What I'm saying is, in this investigation, there has not been much leaking, and I think that's a good sign. But that's my guess that it's that is a good thing, because it tells me they've got what they need, and they don't need to smoke anybody out or keep either public attention focused on the issue generally or to try to pressure somebody specifically. Right. Like when Meadows- No, Mike, it should be stated, this tactic we're talking about, and it's a very gray, murky, undefined, weird, nebulous 
the dark web, the dark art has been used in American history. I mean, since the founding, and in some ways, history looks fondly upon it in the sense of like, yeah, like a, a deep throat where it turned out that was a noble cause. But then the same type of leaking by the authorities against someone who is truly innocent has also been like, I mean, just read Howard's in. It, it's prevalent in American history. So th- there's two sides to this coin when the officials start to to leak. Um, yeah. And I, I just kind of want to state that as a baseline. That's fair. That's absolutely right. I think um, it's a great characterization. That, that wasn't even actually my point. I, I had quick three points. was um, on Zelensky, uh, the caller two previously on the uh, – I, I think he was uh, the Bush, Clinton, Reagan. Let's go back yeah. to George Washington, lock everyone up. And then finally on the progressives and the uh, moderates in uh, Pelosi's caucus. So uh, the first thing on Zelensky, maybe this was just me, and it's uh, – a very minor, more, how would I phrase this, in the in the sense of, like, if I was advising him, because I support Zelensky, I support Ukraine, I think it's a noble cause. Um, I, I think the uh, hand-waving, hand-waving from the Tucker Carlson crowd is just noise that, frankly, even the left should just ignore. It's, it's, it's not real. Um... I thought it was bizarre when Zelensky showed up to the White House in the green fatigues. I'm not going to lie. And here's for, for two reasons. Uh, one, I understand, like, we kind of get why he literally two days before the invasion, all his videos, he's wearing a normal, like, suit and tie, like, normal politician thing. And then, yeah, hey, his world got rocked 72 hours later by, turns out, the Biden administration, CIA, was right. Russia invaded. He went into a bunker. Totally get it. Totally, totally get it. And in fact, to even to this day, when he's in Ukraine, I even get it that, sure, wear the green sweater. Solidarity with the troops of, like, we are a country literally in war. Like, there are literally drones flying in as we speak. Totally get it. I just thought the optics of when you're showing up to the White House, which... Knock on wood, last time I checked, the Russians are not invading. We are not, you know, uh, a 1980s uh, uh, movie. It, you, I'm not even saying you need to wear a coat and tie or just wear normal civilian clothes. It's really not a critique of, like, you need to wear something fancy. It's more, I think you should not be wearing something um, military garb. And I say that for two reasons. One, there's a historical precedent of this. Um, if you go back. Again, correct me, one of the listeners can correct me on this. I love World War II documentaries. I can't recall ever seeing Churchill when he was at the White House, or frankly, even outside the White House, just at a retreat in military garb. Um, But he would have, in the same position, every single right to be wearing it. And maybe he just didn't personally want to do that, because as we all well know, London was being bombed. The second was we, even on the U.S. side, have a direct analogy um, in terms of a, per, or like the, the American closest analogy to this would be Dwight Eisenhower, uh, obviously a famous American World War II general, becomes American president. He is president, closing out the Korean War. Uh, again, during Eisenhower's presidency, 
you will never see any image that he could customarily wear military garbs if he chose to. But I think there's a very that's sort of the historical precedent of why I thought it was just bizarre on Zelensky's part to do that. Like there's just a tradition set. But the reason why Churchill, Eisenhower, these characters did not do that in an from the American side, this goes all the way back to George Washington, is you optically want to just demonstrate if at the very least someone can't read, write, or even hear, they can visually see there's a difference between what the military is and the civilian leadership. And as Zelensky was okay, making his speech, which was an about, excellent speech, I'm gonna, he's I'm making gonna, lots of comparisons to. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you. I'm not gonna kick you off the stage. I get the point. So I'm gonna speak to this, and if you want to stick around for the next question, I'll take that. But I, I get what you're saying. Let me comment on that a little bit. Uh, I think you're wrong. Um, as I said, I think the visuals on this are extremely important. Okay, historical precedent would also suggest that. Presidents wear white wigs, like George Washington did. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't have much bearing f- for that. Okay, the Ukraine is is a country under attack. It is a country under martial law. True, Churchill's England was under the same thing and, and under that same duress. I think that the importance of the visual medium is far different now than it was in the radio age when Winston Churchill was the prime minister. Okay, Had there been television or had there been an internet, I'm not sure you would have seen Churchill in full fatigues, but I think you probably would have seen a, a I don't think you would have seen him at a top hat, a cane, and uh, you know, his, 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 his garb prepared to meet the queen. If you look at leaders like a Castro, for example, Fidel Castro, who was always in fatigues, that branding was saying one thing. I am a revolutionary. This is what I am doing. What Zelensky is saying and reaffirmed today for the entire world to see was, I am leading the military fight against tyranny and my country is at war and we are under attack. And I think it was brilliant. I don't think it was just, first of all, he also can't just pivot and like put on a tie and a coat and just show up and be like, wait a second, you're wearing like a a, a nice suit now suddenly after you've been sitting in a bunker for a year and you're heading into a Russian winter. Like that message is completely off. You can't do that, one. But two, you shouldn't do that. You should lean into the visual. I don't think it was bizarre at all. And I certainly don't think it was bizarre for the millions of people who were consuming this and will be consuming this on social media. I think it's actually extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful to have the military leader. Again, the country is under martial law. There's no like courts and judges or, or this is a war-torn country, okay? This is, this is where they're at. He's not wearing a suit in that bunker normally. Okay, no, no, not, by the way, none of his people are. They are a country at war, at war, and they're behaving like it, and they're demonstrating that visual, and that's the point. 
I think the command that he has of the medium is masterful. And I think that that was a part of it. So we can disagree on that, but we're, we're going to disagree on that. So let me bring you back up and see if we can't get to that next question. Go ahead and unmute. We can ask the third. Okay. Yeah. Feel free to disagree on that. Um, Uh, yeah, so, well, the other, sorry, the, the second point on there was on the, the previous caller that was bringing up wanting to lock everyone up. Yeah, obviously he was crazy. The part that I thought from my perspective that as someone, as a former GOPer, that I have just looked at the Trump presidency through the lens of, and especially January 6th, I think he's guilty. Uh, I, I think he was definitely guilty of impeachment uh, for January 6th. Like, I, I think that is like when they were literally sitting around in Philadelphia, that would be front page, like why you have the impeachment powers. Um, the thing that where it becomes sort of an actuality kind of bizarre and just like in today's social media clickbait, like news cycle, like it, it, it's just the reality of the, the world we live in today, I get it. But there is like, if you take, if you took a step back 50 years from now and you have zero context to the moment and you ask, okay, so there, let me, let me just lay out basic facts. There was a president launched a war under no one's, you know, alleging. Wait, are we we still talking about Zelensky's outfit? No, 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 no. This is Bush. Oh, you're you like wanna, Bush, going to, Bush going to war. Bush going to jail. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to say here is I don't personally think George W. Bush is a war criminal that needs to go, uh, you know, hang in the town square at the Hague. I, I don't personally believe that. But I also, like, think when I look at the crimes against humanity that – so it it's just a bizarre optics that you're going to have. Trump potentially sitting in jail, no, like, on part of his own actions of incompetence. But then you have a Bush who, you know, hey, he's a Bush. He gets along to get along. He says the right shibboleths. You know, he waves the American flag. He's very anti-Putin. Yeah, sure, we'll let him get away with the whole invasion of another effing country, you know, I don't know, what was it? 10,000 yeah, American I, troops. I, you know I, what I mean? Like, it's just a bizarre, um, like, yeah, no, huh? you, you, you kind of lost me there on that one too. I mean, look, I'm not saying that there isn't some, I, I I've never understood like the Bush is a war criminal thing. And I, I get it. We, we can have differences about different wars. I mean, war is a horrible, ugly thing. It's, it's war, wars happen when, when, when there are no other solutions. Okay. But we could say, could, you know, does FDR, did FDR know about Pearl Harbor? Uh, there's, there's tons of evidence suggesting that he did and he wanted that so he could get into the war because America didn't want to get into the war. So he allowed our country to be bombed. And I, 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 I guess we're not talking about a, a president fomenting the overthrow of the United States government because of an election, okay? That's never happened before. That should never happen again. I'm not saying we shouldn't debate these things and have a line, 
But what I will say is there should never be a debate. There is no line or there's a clear line about a president overthrowing the government, our, our own government. Like that, the Trump thing is very different than the, the weird Bush hater thing. I mean, I, I get the politics of the moment. We can go back to every war, especially World War II, and say, you know, a lot more people were lost in World War II than were lost in the Gulf War. The impact, the, the destruction to our country, the attack on Pearl Harbor was as significant as 9-11. So did FDR know about it? Yeah. The evidence is he probably did not only know about it, but the conspiracy theorists would say he allowed it. Do I think we ought to go back and prosecute FDR because of that? No, no, I don't. I don't. I think we ought to start you know, focusing more on kind of the issues of the day and, and, and making sure that we don't ever run into a president who's going to overthrow the government. So I appreciate that, though, Xander. I hope it was helpful, and I appreciate you being here on Mic Drop. Brenda, last call of the evening. Go ahead and unmute. Mm-hmm. Hi, Mike. Can we go back to Ukraine for just a moment? Um, sure. I wanted to ask what you thought um, about Putin getting Belarus involved um, and the danger of Belarus attacking Ukraine. It's a great strategic question. Belarus has basically been a puppet government for Putin for a number of years now. It's entirely um, reliant on them economically. Belarus is geographically situated in a way that can compromise Ukraine, um, arguably more than Russia's border itself. It's really kind of one of the fastest ways to make an incursion into Lviv up through what was called is called the Bloodlands, where a lot of these peasants were killed and starved by Stalin in World War II and encircle uh, Kiev to take the capital. Uh, and, Bel- and a lot of these fronts that have been, you know, advanced uh, during this siege have come from Belarus. Uh, it also provides a, 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 a position on the Western Front if they decide to move to po- on Poland or move on the Baltic states. So, uh, you know, the, the problem with Belarus is it's, a, it's, it's basically an arm of, of Russia. And, and until that's resolved, um, you know, they're going to keep doing, doing his bidding. Um, Belarus is much, much more of a Russian, I don't want to call it a satellite, it's really more of an appendage of Russia. Uh, and, you know, Putin, Putin has influence with the Orbans of the world. Putin has influence uh, with, with a number of Western democracies, including ours, by the way. Including ours. We forget how deep the Russians are in the Republican Party. It's just, it's just, it just is. Okay? Yeah. Um, Belarus... Um, I, I look. I don't think it's going to be determinative, but if Putin falls, if Putin falls, and I, I think we have to start planning for that possibility, Belarus needs to go with it. There needs to be a regime change in Belarus. It, it's, an, it's, it's an appendage of, of of Putin. It's an attempt to, to rebuild the old Soviet empire. I don't know if that's answering your question. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just find it very interesting strategically what is going on. Um, and I have some more questions about that, but I'll save it for next week or whenever we do this again. Merry Christmas and thank you very much.
Brenda, thank you so much. Have a really wonderful Christmas and a great holiday season. All of you mic droppers, thanks so much for not only the discussion tonight, we have a bunch of new voices today, which I'm really excited to have. Um, the community keeps growing, even during the holiday season. Uh, next year, we've got some really, really good stuff coming up. I think we're going to have another one or two of these before we call it a year, before we wrap up 2022. But before that, I'm going to remind you to subscribe to the show right here on Colin so that I can give you that heads up when we do go live. Because if you are new to Mic Drop, we try to do this 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. Uh, on Pacific Coast time every Wednesday. If something happens or some news breaks and we need to get together and kind of chat about what's going on, we will do that. Sometimes we'll have a couple of shows a week. Um so make sure you subscribe directly on the Colin app because I can alert you as to when we're going to have that. Love to have you guys as part of the conversation. Guys, have a really, really wonderful Christmas. Spend some time with your families and be so grateful for what we have as a country, what we did as a people to defend this country in this last election cycle. Be proud. Try not to be as, as anxious and as scared. Um, be, be joyful. Find peace. Find comfort. Find optimism and remember that a lot of great things are going to happen, I think, in this coming year as we keep pushing this movement forward. We'll talk to you next week.